from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at Green Biz headquarters at 350 Franco Gawa Plaza in downtown Oakland, California. On this week's edition, why corporate tax savings should be held to a higher standard, previewing the 2018 class of 30 under 30, why lead must be updated to address climate change, and why biofuels are taking off at United Airlines. It's Project Runway, this week on 350. It's June 2nd, 2018. Where does the year go? Welcome to Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower. Joining me here, as always, is Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Happy June, Joel. I know. Can you believe it? I mean, it's meteorological summer. It's the beginning of the hurricane season, and it's uh, about nine days before our Virgil Hawaii event, all all at one the same time. Absolutely. I'm making my summer vacation plans. Are you, do you have anything on the schedule? Um, not a lot. You know, as you know, I just came back from a big uh, European North African vacation trip. So, you know, I tend to lay low during the summer. I actually do not have any airplane trips currently planned for the months of July and August. And I'm good with that. Well, I'm about to go to Ireland for the fifth time, I believe, doing a Yates, a Yates uh, discovery tour, Ooh. one of my favorite Irish authors. And, uh, I convinced one of my friends to drive around with me and, and see Sligo and some of the places that he used to write about. So is this a self-made tour or is this a formal tour? Believe it or not, it, it was self-made. However, they have the, this crafty Irish uh, tourist authority has, has suggestions about places to go. So it means definitely others have done this. I mean, it's kind of a pilgrimage. He wrote so viscerally about um, places in Bullen, like the, Lake Isle, Innisfree, I mean, just different places in the um, sort of northish west part of the country. And uh, I've never been there. Uh, I've been mostly to the southwestish parts of the country. And I imagine there's some decent Clancy clan over there. There may be. Actually, I don't think I ever told you this, but my brother was married in Killarney um, about 16 years ago now. Coming, He's coming up on his 16th anniversary. Actually, no, 17th. And uh, we had the Clancy clan chieftain at the wedding. Wow. Um, how, yes. How did that happen? <laughs> well, if you get married in a place like Ireland or I think, I don't know what the other countries are, but you have to go over um, and sort of establish some sort of, mm, it's not residency, but you have to be there enough for them to, to bless you getting actually married in the country. And so when my brother was doing that, he... Uh, he, he hunted the guy down and, and found him. And, and believe it or not, he's married to a Russian woman. <laughs> so it was quite, quite, but quite, um, they were quite an amazingly fun couple. And um, I tell you, Irish weddings are um, pretty much nonstop. We uh, started at 11 in the morning. And at, I don't know, about 1.30 or 2, uh, we were trying to shut down. In the, in the, the morning. In the morning. Yeah. The reception uh, place was just horrified. You can't possibly be no, you're going to bed too early. And we thought, well, we've been partying for 13 hours. Yeah, you know, but, you, what? but you still have alcohol left. How can you stop the party? <laughs> it wasn't even that. They, they, there was a lot of dancing and, and people just joining in and, um, you know, random people coming in. The wedding crashers are sort of uh, encouraged there. So <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Anyway, I'm digressing, but that's my plan 
um, for the middle of the summer. Well, that's uh, you know, it's the green Emerald Isles, or it's uh, it's all green, so it somehow will make it fit into this podcast. But uh, you know, let's move over to the week in review. So the week had uh, the, the Twitterati story. The other, who are the corporate sustainable leaders on Twitter, and we run this. Uh, annual-ish uh, leaderboard, uh, which uh, is always always fun to look at. Our, our good friend uh, Dave Stangus, um, as he often does, comes out on top. He's a, he of uh, Campbell's Soup, uh, corporate sustainability, and uh, you know it, some of the same people that we see over and over. It's it's not unusual that people you know once you're a Twitter leader, <laughs> always a Twitter leader. But uh, Trista Thompson at Dell, Diane Holdorf at um, Kellogg's, and Kim Murata. At Miller uh, Molson Coors, uh, Mike Berry at Marks and Spencer, Neil Hawkins at Dow, yeah, Cecily Joseph at Symantec. Anyway, there's uh, I don't know 25 of them or so, um, and uh, definitely worth checking out. And if you're looking to people to follow people on Twitter who know about corporate sustainability, this would be the list for you. Um, and then I'm excited about next Monday. It's our third annual. 30 under 30 cohort release publication announcement. Um, we're going to be naming the next 30 under 30. Indeed. And I'm excited too. I, I think I interviewed five of the, um, of this year's quote class, if you will, the honorees. And, um, they're just, it's just such a kind of a recharge. I get out of talking to them about their fresh ideas, fresh perspective, tons of energy. Um, and, we have a great um, class that includes a lot of international folks and also just a lot of diverse roles um, from sort of the, the corporate insiders that we love to, to focus on, but also, you know, people in the, in the energy, clean energy development world, um, people from China that are working on agricultural projects and, and, and how to digitize um, agricultural in infrastructure over there. And I just, I'm excited about this list. Um, you, I believe are speaking to one of last year's uh, alumni. We, we, we have some great ongoing conversations happening, but is that, is that the case you get to speak to my, one of my favorite, uh, Oh, I did. My yeah. favorite and fellows. Yeah. A little bit later in this uh, podcast, we'll have this interview with Jeremy Bond, who's, uh, part of the 2017, class of 30 under 30 uh, he of interface carpet and um so stick around for that but um you know i want to make one observation joel on the on the list it was uh, interesting to me because you just talked we're talking about the twitter audi list um most of the people i interviewed did not use twitter which was fascinating to me um and seems to be a little bit of a missed opportunity um when trying to build consensus um but it's an interesting dynamic. I think there is a little bit of uh, tension about that particular social platform now. People are a little bit more leery than in the past. So it's good to see that the, um, the stalwarts are still there and, and, and making their, them, their voices heard. Um, but I'm actually very curious to keep watching that and see, see whether the, the dialogue will shift to other social platforms. Yeah, it's a little odd just to think that the leaders on Twitter are the old guard. But I guess that's uh, just the way of the world these days. Um, let's talk about a story that came uh, out of uh, well, Peter Bronsky, who uh, formerly at the Rocky Mountain Institute, now by the division of Panasonic, 
I'm in Gavin McCormick of What Time to talking about from additionality to emissionality, how companies can magnify their impact. Um, I thought this was a pretty interesting uh, concept here, but what did you think? So this theme was uh, pretty dominant at the last couple of meetings that I've been to with the um, Business Renewables Center, also at our, our Verge last fall. It was a um, sort of the notion that additionality, which is very much an accounting term, right? So you it refers to um, if you're if you're investing in a renewable energy project, is it adding? Is it truly adding solar or wind power to the grid? Are you investing in a new project as as a corporate buyer um, that adds? In other words, would would this have happened whether you bought it or not, or is exactly. this happening? Is this happening right. only because you've mm-hmm. made the investment or, or the purchase? Yeah, and it, what this emissionality uh, term gets to is the location, right? So. Assuming that you've passed that first metric, right? You're you're absolutely adding. Um, this would not have happened without you, et cetera. Um, how will it impact the, the grid? So, is it going to be in in you know in a place like California, which is already actively investing in um, clean power, um, and and therefore won't necessarily have as much of an emissions offset, right? Or is it in a place where there's a ton of coal and it's the first sort of greenfield project in, in that state or region and so forth. So um, what this piece really drives at is, is trying to convince the corporate buyers to start using this metric. Um, and, and I suppose it's not really officially a term yet, emissionality, but to, to, to suggest that the buying teams think about this more. Where is this? How is this going to affect this, the, the community? Um, will it help um, socially or financially disadvantaged um, folks that can't get their hands on if we're lights on um, solar and wind power today. So it's um, it's it's a slightly different concept and and it's really just sort of pushing the the motivation dialogue forward a little bit. And I think it's part of uh, or indicative of a, a maturing industry where we're looking at not just are you checking the box of buying solar, but is that solar actually making a difference? Is it moving the needle in some way? Where you know, where is it? How does it relate to to carbon reductions in in the right places? Because we're getting to the point where, and particularly here in California, for example, and, and some other places where there's too much solar or more solar than the grid can handle. Some of it's going to to waste, um, and so and that will change as the capacity builds to absorb more and more solar power uh, within the California grid, um, but you know, are there other places, not obviously just in the United States, but around the world where it will make more of a difference, not just in reducing emissions, but also in jumpstarting markets that may not yet be fully engaged. So this is a great concept. And and, and while we're sort of on, a, on that vein, uh, sort of tilting at, uh, well, not exactly windmills, but um, solar panels, but but also just sort of looking at sort of established sustainability, challenging some of the established sustainability. We had a great two-part series by an old friend of mine, Greg Katz, who's the president of Capital E in Washington, D.C., uh, one of the pioneers in green building and the U.S. Green Building Council and and in finance of green building uh, projects and technologies. Um, looking at uh, you know how lead needs to change to address climate change. And uh, one of the things he specifically calls for um, is raising the minimum CO2 reductions to be basically LEED certified, making sure that 
lead buildings are actually, again, similar to what we were just talking about with solar, actually making a difference in the communities and actually uh, you know, stepping up their game now that lead has become and green buildings have become so commonplace. Uh, what are the, uh, can, can we actually measure the CO2 reductions and bake those as it were into the standards themselves? That's not being done right now, and and Greg has make, made that compelling case in these two uh, two part series that we we ran this week. Actually, we ran it uh, at the end of last week uh, on on how lead can address climate more. And you know, this is not just a, um, a sort of hypothetical argument. This this is actually a, a, a proposal before the uh, USGBC. Um, it's got. 150, I think he says, longtime green building leaders that support this idea. Um, and it's indicative of, you know, a, a good framework that was put in place years ago when certain other um, assumptions were, were, were happening, like so that there was going to be good policy at the federal level, that, that there will be other things supporting um, the movement. And I think it's, it's a wonderful example of how things have to evolve over time and how you can't become complacent. Um, you know, we, how a good program won't necessarily be good next year. Um, and a great program needs to just continue evolving and, and becoming, um, a leading, you know, an, an emerging leading edge thing rather than a status quo thing, a mainstream thing. Yeah. And then there's one more piece that, that was sort of on this same topic of, of sort of looking at, you know, sort of policies and macro shifts and ways that will could potentially move the needle. And this is a piece by Tim Smith, uh, who's a professor of sustainable systems management at the University of Minnesota, and I think still runs the North Star Initiative there at the University of Minnesota, um, about how companies might want to think about the windfall they're getting from the the tax cuts, the Tax Cut and Job Act, TCJA, or the Trump tax cuts, if you will. Um, in terms of what they're doing with that money, and is it does it have any reinvestment in sustainability, particularly as we're getting increasingly focused on on what's the larger responsibilities of corporations to society, as we saw Larry Fink of BlackRock uh, um, urge corporate CEOs to, to to look at more. And you know, there's a lot of money here um, during the f first quarter of of this year alone. Uh, the tax cuts uh, are estimated to have created more than 15 billion in excess earnings to the largest 500 U.S. companies. Uh, could be 80 billion by the end of of this calendar year, or 80 billion less to the federal government as a result of the reductions in corporate income taxes. Um, and so, yeah. So I think this is the question. One of the questions about as we look at this tax cut, and is it just going back to investors? Um, and or is it being reinvested in jobs? Or as as Tim Smith points out, is is this going out to not just the, the profits but the interests of diverse uh, stakeholders, um, taking the form of corporate sustainability and social responsibility initiatives? Uh, and I guess the the question is is how much uh, will companies be held accountable for that? Where are you putting your windfall? Uh, is it going into into jobs? Is it going into carbon reductions, clean water, healthy soil, uh, uh, thriving farming communities, um, climate change? 
that's a really interesting question, and it's one that hasn't gotten a lot of attention lately. It hasn't gotten a lot of attention. I think uh, I remember hearing a lot about this sort of, um, you know, the bonuses that were being paid out when this first started happening, and um, I think that it's kind of in, it's up to the institutional investors and the other folks that are that are making you know the the Black Rocks of the world that are interested in seeing this this social um, moray, if you will, this is social fabric being more into the management positions of, of large companies. Um, and, and whether or not they, I think they're going to, they're going to start pointing at this money and say, Hey, look, you had this much money and what are you doing with that money? And I think it, it's incumbent on, on people to start asking questions and start following and, and following that money trail. Um, that probably not, not, I won't, I'll be jaded and pessimistic and say, I think until that happens, um, there may, may not be all that much different that happens, but it, but it is a huge opportunity um, for there to be money redeployed in different ways. Yeah, it really is comes down to how much will the public, whether directly or through pol- politicians or activists or investors, hold companies accountable for the, the social and environmental impacts. This has been the question for Ever, but it's in this uh, particular time where we're seeing growing inequality, growing climate threats, growing uh, you know topsoil loss, and some other things that directly affect the well-being of, in this case, the United States. Uh, you know, will that money uh, be put to any use? Will the public ask companies, "What did you do with that money?" And given all of the the challenges that we as a nation are facing, given all of the opportunities to invest in people and infrastructure, uh, in natural ecosystems, and other things that do have business benefits and, and have some can have some payback, um, that will be the big challenge. Uh, and that's, you know, to a large extent up to all of us. As I mentioned earlier, we met last week the Green Biz Executive Network at the headquarters of United Airlines in the heart of Chicago and uh, had the chance while there to talk to Angela Foster Rice, the uh, Managing Director of Environmental Affairs and Sustainability at United, and thought just talk a little bit about um, uh, sort of the biofuels and sort of what's going on. So, first of all, uh, welcome, Angela, and thanks for, for hosting. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. It's really quite an honor. So, I'd heard a little bit about biofuels in the past, but I was really impressed with how far you've taken it, uh, not just from, uh, well, from a couple different sources. So so talk about the the two different programs you have going. The first has to do with beef tallow. Yes, yes. So so biofuels really have made uh, huge advancements for aviation in the last few years. And it was just um, a few years ago, really it was in 2011, was the first time there was any commercial flight in the U.S. on biofuels. And that was a flight we did out of Houston in one flight. And now, uh, we are actually receiving regular quantities of biofuels every two weeks into LA, LAX, and we have for the last two years. So that's Aldair, our partnership with them, um, and they have a facility just outside of LA in Paramount, and they use animal fat tallow as their feedstock, um, and essentially they can use anything that's going to uh, make an oil. And so um, that represents a 60% reduction from a life cycle basis for that fuel. Um, and then, um, and we actually are the only ones in, in the world, really, that are doing these regular deliveries. And I know there'll be more growing over time. 
Our second relationship is with Fulcrum Bioenergy, and they take municipal solid waste and they gasify it and make it into a fuel. So they're building their first full-scale facility right now, and we've invested more than $30 million in them um, and have the ability to co-develop five biorefineries. So very, very excited about them, and it's a much higher uh, carbon reduction than the first technology. And so uh, we're thrilled that this is technology is happening. So these are interesting investments, um, and, and as a result, um, all of this is out of LAX, is that right? I understand that uh, every flight, United flight departing LAX has some percentage of biofuels, is that true? That is true, and, L and Altair is um, in LA, so that right outside LA, so the quantities that they are producing are delivered at LA every two weeks. It's a small percentage right now, small quantities, but it's um, but the fact that it's everyday operations is really what makes um, the Altair situation different than other airlines. We've seen lots of cases where airlines have done, say, a week of flights or a month of flights, but this is kind of that every everyday use. Um, and so it is going, we're treating it just like all other fuel we have. That's a, that was a big commitment we had in the biofuel space was stop boutiquing, stop having it be one-offs, treat the biofuels like we treat all our other fuels. And so we are, we're treating it just like all other fuels because of that stored the same all together and it's used on all of our flights. And the fuels are drop-in fuels so you don't have to alter the engines or do anything different. You're just replacing, I presume, a, a gallon of biofuels for a gallon of, of diesel? You've got it, exactly. And, and because these investments, aircraft are so expensive, it, this industry's had to go to a drop-in to make it be successful. Um, it's taken a number of years because it's obviously very strict standards. Um, FAA, the, the manufacturers like Boeing, the engine manufacturers, had to approve the use of these fuels, and they are certified. We actually certify it twice. First, um, when the biomass material is turned into a, what's called a neat material, and again, when it's blended with, with traditional petroleum. So it's treated the same, and um, it's drop-in fuel. Why do this? Uh, you're the only, at least large U.S. airline that's doing this with any significant quantities, at least compared to your, your big competitors, uh, American and Delta. Well, why is United investing in this? What, what drove it? Well, you know, all the airlines are interested in the space growing. I mean, as um, through our trade association and others, we've all talked about we have goals um, to, um, to move forward and to reduce our footprint from a carbon perspective. Um, but the reason I think that we've been a little different is we truly have treated this from a long-term perspective and realized that um, we're not going to have the fuel unless we get in now, and we actually have got our skin in it. It's, it's not for the light of heart. I mean, investing, you know, essentially in startups, right? And it's not easy to do. It's, it's not normally what we do. And so we had to just decide, is that important that we're going to get in there and really move the industry? How do you talk about this? I fly United fairly regularly. I haven't seen any mention of this as a part of the airline traveling public. Uh, how are you messaging this? Apparently not very well. Um, you know, it's hard. Um, there is so much messaging out there. I think that um, it's a challenge to actually help educate on the things you're doing um, without overstating it. I mean, we still have a long ways to go to scale up this industry. So, you know, if you, depending on how you message it and talk about, I think I'm very, I'm very excited about what we're doing. Um, I feel very, um, 
uh, proud about our leadership in the space, but it is going to be a long road before we scale up. So how you talk about the messaging, you have to be careful. You're not having people give them the impression like, hey, any flight, flight you fly will be on biofuels. Well, no, it's going to take time. So I think trying to find the right mark and how to get that message out there, people understand where we are in the space, we haven't quite figured that that out. I have an idea about what would make this maybe viral-ish, at least, you know, for, for well, could be viral-ish. Um, do you want to hear it? Uh, of course. I think this takes off, so to speak, when um, you can tell people on a flight that the trash that or recyclables or whatever it is that you're collecting will, will then be going to fuel a future United flight. People go on planes, they see how much is left on board, how much is collected, and if they see that that is going to a use that they understand and will benefit from, that's when it becomes, I think, something worth talking about. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think, uh, of course, we'd love to be able to recycle as much of that as possible. That is what happens. And that's actually what Fulcrum does, which I didn't mention. They do pull out the recyclables to the extent that they can get those out. Those have real value. So that can go into a useful stream on its own to make things what's left um, is then gasified, made into a fuel. So you have those two pathways. But that I agree, it's very powerful. So where does this go? Where do you see in you know two five years where where this program? Where do you hope it will be? Well, you know, I hope that there are more um, companies like Fulcrum that are are scaling up, and and Altair also is is looking to expand what they're doing. Um, th that there's going to be a lot more happening. I think um, these are big investments. They're a lot of money. They take time. Um, so, you know, having more money coming into the space and being willing to have a bit more longer time on your return on investment. So, so my hope is we're going to see a lot more of these companies like Fulcrum and other airlines that are also um, investing. Great. Well, it's an interesting program. We'll look forward to watching it. Angela Foster Rice is Managing Director of Environmental Affairs and Sustainability at United Airlines. Thanks, Angela. Thank you. As I mentioned earlier in the show, next week on Monday the 4th, we're going to be releasing our 2018 class of Green Biz 30 Under 30s. And I thought be good to check in with one of last year's uh, honorees uh, just to see how it's going. So I've got Jerami Bond, who's the Sustainability Strategy Manager at Interface, the carpet company. How's it going, Jerami? It's going great, Joel. Thanks so much for having me on again. Yeah. I, you know, I thought I'd just check in. I mean, to, just to understand, and I'm not looking for a testimonial here, but to really understand what this kind of designation does for uh, a young person. In your case, you're, I think, now 25, um, and so you're still well under 30. Uh, but I noticed, for example, that on your LinkedIn page, you have, uh, it says, Drawmy Bond, Sustainability Strategy Manager at Interface 2017 Green Biz 30 Under 30. So you, you've been playing that up. Talk a little bit about what this did for you and how you see this impacting young people. Absolutely. Well, there's so much value in this honor, um, you know, first and foremost, it was very, very empowering and motivating. Um, it was a, few, a huge uh, confidence booster that kind of validates your good work and your perspectives and what you bring to this, the world of sustainable business. Uh, and for me, it really gave me a new platform to talk about the things that I care about most, what I'm most passionate about. Um, personally, I'm really focused on 
galvanizing this sustainable business community to embrace the intersections between diversity and inclusion, environmental and social justice, and the work that we do on a daily basis. And so uh, after receiving that 30 under 30 recognition, it kind of gave me a new, just a new voice and a new platform to be able to um, share on a higher level. And um, I've also seen for some of the 30 under 30s in my cohort that you know, this credential can serve as a pathway into doing work that they've always dreamed of doing. Um, you know, for, for some, it's given them um, kind of credentials for new job opportunities. And for others, it's given them the chance to lead on a higher level within their uh, specific organization. And so um, it's been really exciting to see uh, my cohort use this pretty creatively to um into realms in which they're able to make the impacts that they really want to make on the world. And one other thing I wanted to mention was just that one of the most fulfilling aspects of being named the 30 under 30 was the fact that I was able to make my parents proud. Um, you know, my mom, she poured her entire life into educating me, homeschooling me from K through 12. Um, she left a budding career in computer science to do that. And so looking back at all of the investments she's made into my life, on a day-to-day basis, um, it really prepared me for that moment. So being able to reach that point last year was really special for her, as well as my dad, who's my hero. So I'm really glad that I was able to bring this one home for the family. <laughs> awesome. So, so talk a little bit about the this platform that this you said helped create or at least support for you. Is this internal within uh, Interface, or is this uh, on a bigger stage? So I'd say both. Um, you know, a little bit after receiving the recognition last year, I was given the opportunity to write on my personal journey as well as my vision for diversity in the sustainability field, and got to uh, have that published on GreenBiz, which is another dream come true. On top of Thirty Under Thirty, really uh, grateful for that opportunity. But yes, you know, within Interface, I've had the opportunity to step into a realm where I'm working closer with HR on building out diversity and inclusion inclusion programming and um, finding ways to embed that deeper into our company's you know business strategy, culture, um, and things of that nature. And so I guess having the opportunity to write and to be recognized put me on the radar even for you know my internal colleagues um, and they pulled me in to kind of invest my perspectives and thoughts and insights into the great work that they were already doing um, or the great work that they were doing around this. And so, yeah, it was great. So speaking of writing, uh, you wrote another piece, and I don't know as of this moment that we're talking uh, on Wednesday whether it's running this week. I think it is on on Friday or, if not, early next week. But it's about some of the insights you've had as a, as a sustainability professional that you wanted to share, three of them. To talk a little bit about how did you come to write that and want to put that down? Yeah, Joel, that's a great question. I mean, recently I've taken some time just to slow down a little bit and reflect on, you know, what's happened over the past year, the past few years since being with Interface. And there's just so many lessons that I've been able to learn from personal experience, from learning from my fellow 30 under 30 cohort. Um, And I really wanted to just capture some of those most important learnings that I felt I could share with the broader sustainability community around how to 
create a more dynamic sustainability team. And so, you know, briefly, a few of the things that I shared, you know, first and foremost, a great sustainability team should be um, tied in intimately to the core business. Um, it's easy for a company to put a sustainability team kind of in the corner, like, yeah, those are the green folks, they're doing their green initiatives, and they're not as connected to what the rest of the business looks like. And that's a pretty dangerous place for a sustainability team to be because it's easy to, you know, kind of cut an or cut a group like that if the company experiences, um, you know, difficult times economically. But when a sustainability team is tied in deeply, fueling the business, helping add value to, you know, all stakeholders and just be more dynamic. Um, there's also an opportunity that sustainability teams have to really engage with greater empathy with communities in need. Um, it's really easy for teams to kind of copy paste social impact programs onto communities without really knowing them, engaging with them, um, understanding true needs versus perceived needs. And so, you know, I talked a little bit about sustainability groups pressing in and developing more collaborative solutions, shifting from isolated philanthropy to generational investment. And then finally, you know, I encourage sustainability teams to set really big aspirational goals. And obviously I'm a little bit biased, you know, being with Interface, but, you know, I'm inspired on a daily basis by the fact that my company is committed to reversing global warming um, and reorganizing our business to uh, continue to make carpet tiles that change the world. And so, um, you know, I spent some time with Paul Hawken last year and he reminded me um, and some of my colleagues that, you know, big goals lead to big innovation. And so I felt that, you know, that was a, a key point worth sharing. And so all in all, I really just wanted to harness, um, you know, just what's been on my mind and, and what I've been able to yeah. glean from the people around me over the past few years. Well, it's a, it's a great piece. And one of the things I love about it is that you, you're saying these three lessons after three years in corporate sustainability. And, and you know, most people wait till 30 years before they re look back <laughs> and reflect. And so I really love that you at your, you know, I will say tender age of 25, <laughs> uh, you know, is already taking some perspective. And it'll be interesting to revisit those in two or three more years and, and see what you think then, uh, then about what you're feeling now. But before I let you go, Drami, um, uh, what advice do you have for the 2018 class of 30 under 30s in terms of how to leverage the opportunity, not necessarily for publicity, or at least not just for publicity, but in, ter in their terms of advancing their careers? What would you, uh, what have you learned and what would you recommend? You know, I believe that the sustainability movement needs fresh messages and messengers. And, you know, we are those new messengers. I believe that, you know, culture really drives everything um, from behavior to belief to action. And I think that the 30 under 30s have an opportunity to kind of be conduits that help relay, um, you know, some of the most important messages that we need to get across around society and the environment, but in a way in which everyday people can understand digest and get behind. And so, um, you know, be bold and look for opportunities to influence strategy, uh, craft communications, develop programs, because um, you never know where tomorrow's big idea will come from. And so I just, you know, I'm, since being a part of this, this 30 and 30 cohort, I've been exposed to just incredibly brilliant 
thinkers, um, people that just really push the envelope and um, are really bold in their thinking. And they've helped me stretch and grow as well. And I just want to kind of continue to pass that message down. I've learned a lot from um, the class before me and my current class. And I just want to see this next one continue to you know, do good work, take the baton, and just really push the envelope and, and, and be confident in the ideas that they're bringing to the table. Well, thanks for continuing to push that envelope. I look forward to you writing more for us as we ask uh, as many or all of our 30 under 30s to uh, check in with us and write uh, something about what they're seeing in the world. Jeremy Bond is a sustainability strategy manager at Interface and a 2017 Green Biz 30 under 30. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks so much, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization's stories, events, and other things we mentioned in this episode. While you're there, check out a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. We'll be back next week for another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Thank you.